This is The Shift Podcast. Today on The Shift Daily Podcast, are you okay with racing dogs, testing positive for meth? We also talk about buffalo and pizza. Unrelated, though. Greg Fish highlights new research that shows how microgravity can scramble your brain in space. This is problematic for Elon Musk and anyone else that he's sending to Mars. We also talk about long-term care homes quite a bit here on The Shift. The difference between them yesterday and today and the impact on them in the future if we don't take care of them. All of this and more on The Shift Daily Podcast. For Are You Okay? Are you okay with drag races? Drag races? Yeah. Yeah. I mm-hmm. I watch shows just to see what kind of ridiculous things. I saw a guy put a 1,000 brake horsepower engine in a Mini Cooper, and it was one of the most beautiful Wicked. things I've ever seen. Is hilarious. I, so, yeah, I love drag races. I saw a Mini Cooper for sale on Kijiji that was jacked up on, like, a truck chassis. It was actually kind of cool. <laughs> love it. Yeah. Um, and as I, uh, as I, oh, sorry, Brendan, you got something there? Sorry, buddy. No, I was just going to say the inner child in me, I used to watch drag racing every Sunday, um, as like a little eight year old, just hoping those funny cars would blow up. Yeah. Mm. (laughs) That was before you understood what really happened. I was so excited when my son was old enough. I was like, okay, watch the tires. They're short and fat. And then when they spin, they get tall and skinny. That was my most exciting, like, parenting moment of all the parenting Funny. moments. I like yeah. that. Now, as I, um, as I say that, um, thank you for the nice conversation about drag races. Uh, I just misread the title. Are you okay? I was going to say. <laughs> Are you okay with dog races? See, oh. no, 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 not, no, <laughs> that, no. <laughs> I'd rather watch a car race. I, I, yeah, yeah no. No. I, I remember that when I was a parent, when I was being a dad one day and I was watching dog races with my son and I was like, you see how the dog is short and fat? And then when he starts to run, he gets tall and skinny. Doesn't <laughs> translate. Uh. Doesn't translate at all. All right. Apparently we're not okay with dog races. Um, they're fast though, little buggers. A dog trainer is in the dog house with the authorities, authority <laughs> in New Zealand after her prize winning greyhound tested positive after a race. Positive for meth. What? <laughs> oh, yeah. It turns turns out greyhounds aren't skinny at all. That's a bad joke. The dog called Zipping Sarah raced to a first place finish at the track in Christchurch last November. In what authorities say was a meth fueled performance. Man, urine tests after the race, which would not be a fun job, by the way. Trying to get the urine of a race dog. Can you imagine? <laughs> like, whoa, hold still, whoa. Uh, anyway, urine tests after the race showed that Zipping Sarah had methamphetamine and uh, amphetamine. Okay, good. My brain was failing me there. Methamphetamine and amphetamine in her system, according to RNZ News. Zipping Sarah's team was immediately disqualified and denied the $4,000 prize money uh, for winning. Uh, Sarah's dog, uh, the dog's trainer, Angela Helen Turnwald, has since pleaded guilty to failing to produce a substance-free dog for the race. New Zealand's... <laughs> Sorry, this that's just a really funny charge. <laughs> wow. Yeah, don't don't like can you imagine that on Law and Order? Don't don't. Yeah. You're failing to produce uh, <laughs> the dog. Failed to produce a substance-free dog for the court. Right? That seems strange to me. Anyway, 
Um, I lost my spot. I totally lost my spot. Anyway, um, it looks like this dog <laughs> is high on meth. It's good science. It's good law work right there. She was fined $3,500, banned from the sport for four months as her punishment. Officials ultimately ruled that there was no deliberate wrongdoing in the case. Nevertheless, the incident sparked anger among animal rights groups in New Zealand. It was also reported the third case of dog doping within the last six months. Zipping Sarah was allowed to continue racing after the drug test and notched (laughs) four top three finishes, official records show. In 2019, a massive dog racing drug ring was discovered down in the States. Wow. Oh, no way. This is yeah. a thing. You're not kidding. Um, here's more from News for Jacks. The suspension order came out last month after the state started investigating the owner and trainer of numerous greyhounds, a man named Charles McClellan. The suspension order says he trained 17 greyhounds that tested positive for something called benzoylagonine, referred to as a metabolite for cocaine. Here's one of his dogs, Flicka, who tested positive after this April race, darting out to the lead. Now the dog racing industry is facing a backlash. In fact, I spoke with the group Gray 2K USA, a group that opposes greyhound racing and is particularly disturbed by the number of positive tests. I mean, th- that is breathtaking in its scope. It's it's just simply the largest greyhound drug case in American history. Uh, in addition to that, the facts in this case uh, do suggest that this is a race-fixing case. But customers at the Orange Park track are defending racing, despite jokes that the races are rigged. I said, we know the dogs are rigged. You know they're rigged? No, I don't know. I just heard it on the news, that's all. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, this is fact. Are you sure? No, it's just what I heard. (laughs) Not really. Um, Well, uh, to... By the way... Drag racing and drug dogs turns out to be one of the most texted topics in Are You Okay history. Yeah, you guys are lighting up. All over it here. Okay, so um, there's text about RuPaul's Drag Race, which is one of Ryan's favorite shows. It is. Um, There is the... Oh, see, now I have to scroll. There's so many of them now. Um, Okay. Hey, Ryan, that Mini Cooper is out in Carsland. I know it well, JoJo. So there you go. You're... Thousand brake horsepower Mini Cooper, uh, dog races. Animals are abused. I don't. I've never seen it, but for everything I've ever heard, I would say that that's probably uh, the truth. But I've never seen it, so I've never been around it. If it wasn't for dog racing, we wouldn't have Santa's little helper. Good point. Um, that's a meth hound for you. My cat needs some crystal meth. What about drag racers that use nitromethane? Isn't that meth fueled? Yeah. Um, uh, y- yeah. <laughs> I know this is not kind of the same, yeah. right? <laughs> there goes the perfect shift. Nos jib, my lord. Um, and not only uh, all of those things, have you ever met a greyhound? They're incredibly skittish, and this would explain some stuff. <laughs> and if you've ever been on TikTok or your, or your Instagram reels, like, no padding, please don't pat me, <laughs> like the, all those things for the dogs, those are all greyhounds, and there's a reason why they don't want to be padded. So just look it up. Just Google TikTok or Instagram and please don't pet me. Can't and, greyhounds run at like 75 kilometers an hour? I'm just trying. Yeah, I'm trying to fast, think like but... skittish dog plus meth and that top speed. Yeah. It's just not okay 
for so many reasons. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, who knew? 877-399-9898. Um, we make jokes, but in all fairness, you know we love dogs in the show. Uh, if it was cats, then, yeah, feel free to make jokes. Uh, are you okay? Are you okay with pizza oh, from yeah. Buffalo, New York? From Buffalo, New York. Oh, even still, yeah. Even better. Buffalo. Even be- yeah, why not? Why, why Buffalo, Brennan? Well, my mom comes from Buffalo. Um, yeah. I've spent a lot of time in Buffalo. So Buffalo in a, like in a roundabout way produced me. Um, and I also like pizza. Yeah. Okay. Um, this is confusing because Buffalo hot wings, Buffalo's pizza, according to some outlets is incredibly hard to beat. Buffalo. I happen to think is a fantastic city. When I lived in St. Kitts, we used to go across, um, all the time. There's a lot of fun. Walden Galleria, Cheektawaga. Cheektawaga. Used to always go to Cheektawaga. And then I used to always go ga- go get gas. Um, I think it was Harlem Road, right by a big cemetery. And Harlem Road, there it is. The Sunoco on Harlem Road. That used to be the spot because it was down from the Walden Galleria. And I used to get the gas and get my Sunoco gas there. And then, of course, go back across the border. And um, then I could always say, yeah, I also went to Harlem. The Galleria. You got to say it like that. That's a, The that's Galleria? A, that's how they say it in Buffalo. The, ga- the Galleria. Galleria. <laughs> oh, like a taco? Like yeah. that? So why is the pizza so good, Brendan? It's, a, uh, it's really all that Buffalo's got going for it. Good wings, good pizza. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta have something to eat at a Bills game. <laughs> I'm sorry. I mean, some people affectionately refer to it as the armpit of the Northeast. Um, yeah. There's not much else going for it. It's, I like Buffalo. It's got its charm. Yeah. Yeah. I was driving there when I was married at the time, and my mother-in-law. We were going past on the freeway, and there was like this interchange, and then there was the there are Buffalo statues there. And I, I'll never forget it. Oh, yeah. And she said to me, why are there buffalo statues here? <laughs> yeah. Oh. <laughs> I wonder why. <laughs> um, anyway, I got divorced. All fixed. Well, it must be amazing pizza in Buffalo. Uh, Brendan says so. Also amazing because a boy from Ohio decided that instead of a brand new Nintendo Switch, instead of a Nintendo Switch, he wanted a piece of buffalo pie. Here's more from WKBW News, Buffalo. What this? Many say buffalo pizza is second to none. We all travel, and when we travel, one of the things we miss most is the pizza. You know, we're, we say, what's a local pizza shop? And then we have them like, oh, this isn't really quite the same as it is in Buffalo. Heather Getz's nine-year-old son, Kenley, agrees. But the pizza is hard to come by. After all, Heather and her two sons live six hours away outside of Columbus, Ohio. Heather says she brought the boys here to Franco's Pizza on Niagara Falls Boulevard during their trip here for Easter back in April. And she says their reaction to the pizza was something she never could have expected. After we tried it, then now they want to go and try some more. <laughs> so much so, it's at the top of Kenley's birthday wish list when he turns 10 next month. So talk to me about that conversation, how that went. Yeah. So he wanted a Nintendo Switch and to go to Buffalo. And so I told him I couldn't do both. Kenley chose pizza. Heather decided to tweet about her son's choice and her tweet has gone viral. You know, most kids 
video games and stuff is life. So I thought it was funny that he didn't even think of it. You know, it's like Buffalo pizza, you know, that, that, that holds no competition. He has his priorities right. Franco's pizza is among those who saw that now viral tweet and wanted to do something nice from one pizza lover to another. Franco says right away, well, we should get him a Switch. I think this is this is fantastic. I'm told that gaming system is already on its way to Kenley's house in Ohio. A kind gesture, no matter how you slice it. In Tonawanda, Allie Tui, 7 Eyewitness News. Allie, did you hear how Allie said Allie? Yeah, and Tonawanda. Tonawanda. Well, you look at that. Allie. WKBW. Um, WKBW. That's Eyewitness News. <laughs> I love it. All right, uh, we can squeeze in one more before we get to Mr. Fish, I think. Hey, sure, why not? Definitely. All right. Are you okay? Are you okay with airports? It used to be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love going to the airport. I mean, it was like the start of a journey. And I don't know. There's like a an, a vibe well, as soon as you walk into one that's hard to describe that I really like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, flying to Hawaii and going connecting in Vancouver, when you go to the international terminal, They've got like one of those shoulder rub places, and then there's a Canucks bar there. You so said, we'll go there and get a beer and have a burger. It's pretty good. And then you could get like the shoulder back massage and then get on your flight and have another beer. You're on vacation. Something special about there. There's also a shoeshine guy yeah. in, uh, in, in, uh, in Pearson at Terminal 3. That is just amazing in the WestJet Terminal there, too. When you go, there's, there's special things about all the airports. You know, there's also a shoe shy guy, uh, guy at the uh, Buffalo Airport. Oh, there you go. <laughs> the there's another thing. Oh man, um, I have Buffalo International stories. I got. I don't have time to share them today. Remind me, we'll share them. Uh, will you? Uh, you will always be presented with challenges when you go to an airport. It's got its novelty. Something always goes wrong. You kind of work it out. You make your plane. You feel great. Customer service, maybe. Security people, maybe your luggage is hard or they want to overcharge you because you've got six extra beers in your bag. Didn't happen. If you're in Florida, how about some fist fights? This is from CBS Miami. Caught on camera, a fight at Miami International Airport. This video is from Concourse D, Gate 12 in the American Airlines Terminal. Passengers waiting on their flight to Chicago say there was an argument with the gate agent over standby seats. A group of four was told only three standby seats would be available. The agent then asked the next group of three if they wanted to go. Words were exchanged between the two groups of standby passengers. Then they started fighting. Miami-Dade police identified one of the people involved and say he's charged with disorderly conduct. Wow. (laughs) gonna get in trouble (laughs) yeah you're gonna get in you guys there's probably eight people fighting and they were full-on haymakers in the airport like it was it's amazing this is the shift podcast welcome to the world of weird things with greg fish he is our favorite of the weirdos greg fish how are you I'm doing well. How about yourself? I'm wonderful. Thank you very much. Things are okay here. Spring is uh, feeling more springy. Uh, the world is looking more weird all the time. If you want to follow along to Greg Fish's posts and his blogs and his podcast, you can just go to worldofweirdthings.com and check it out there. 
So, fishy, what's the plan here? I think we're getting um, we're getting brainy here, aren't we? Yeah, we are. Well, we're getting oh, brainy again. We're this 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 has to be a theme here. Uh, so today we are actually going to talk about the brain and specifically what happens to your brain in microgravity. Okay. Uh, first question. I think everyone, it's safe to say, will know what the brain is. What about microgravity? So microgravity is essentially free fall. It's, it's really what it is. So when astronauts go into space, there's really nothing that is pulling them down directly. They're essentially in the controlled fall around the planet. Or if they're going deeper, they're going to the moon, uh, so on and so forth. They are effectively in a controlled free fall. So because there's no gravity actively pulling them down, they just kind of float. The problem with that is that your body evolved in an environment that has gravity. So it doesn't really know what to do when that gravity is shut off. So all sorts of pretty bad things happen. Uh, First of all, your heart shrinks because it doesn't need to pump as hard. Your bones start getting reabsorbed your muscles atrophy without exercise. Uh, There's impacts on your nervous system, on your immune system. And one of the more interesting things is your brain actually gets pressed up against your skull, which kind of starts messing with the connections inside of it. So NASA has been studying what happens on long-term missions. So there's there's astronauts who have went into space. They've been there a year or more. Uh, and honestly, they're, they're not the same. Like they're never going to quite be the same after that. And they knew that. Hmm. They knew that going in. But now when NASA is looking at, okay, well, what happens when we take them out of Earth orbit? When we send them, when we plan for a mission to Mars, the last three years, what's going to happen? And they've been doing all sorts of studies on what happens um, in the brain, what happens to these astronauts. And they find that, well, in microgravity, it actually starts getting really much more difficult to understand people's emotions and facial expressions and interpersonal communications take a hit uh, and cognition becomes more difficult because some things that are that used to be automatic that your brain is just used to do enduring gravity uh, aren't there anymore so your brain has to kick in harder to compensate so it's it's kind of like you're using more mental bandwidth on things that should basically just be second nature to you it, it mm. is it is a it is a quite a bit of a concern because you know what's going to happen in two three years it it really uh, it really makes them worried. Okay, so without knowing the different parts of the brain, um, have they found any more information about that? So I mean, there's the front of your brain, there's the left side, the right side. They all have different jobs that they're typically known for. Is the pressing on the top what's causing some of the grief here, or is it just the neural pathways? kind of like how your heart gets weaker because it doesn't have to work so hard is the do the neural pathways recognize gravity and and that map changes too is it sort of the map or the i guess that would be the physiology it's probably something that's related to that map but they don't know for sure that's why they have to keep doing more studies part of it is uh some of these studies have to take place on earth you basically put people in a bed and then you kind of incline them at, a, at, at about six degrees off perfectly flat. And that kind of simulates how the fluids move in microgravity. Mm. And that's usually kind of like the bedrock of these studies. They have they do match up very well with what they see with actual astronauts. Is just there's far fewer astronauts. They're doing a lot of things. They're constantly mentally stimulated. You can't really 
you know, plan their mission around your study. They're, they're too valuable. Uh, their time is just far too valuable. Uh, but again, those, those, those analog studies, these analog bed rest studies do actually match up very well to what we see. And um, the people who come out of them have the same kind of adjustment problems as seeing astronauts who return to Earth after, you know, two, three, four months in space. So wow. it, it is, yeah, it, it, you can kind of do pretty, pretty amazing things if you put a little bit of, uh, a little bit of thought to it. Okay, so, hey, Ryan, by the way, um, we got a job, new job for you. We're going to pay it a lie in bed at a decline for 60 days because astronauts are more valuable than you are, and it's possible all of this could basically short-circuit your brain. You might not come out ever the same. Deal? If there's free food, deal. All right. Well, now we know. Now we know what that takes. Uh, you know, actually, funny enough, there are so there are periodically studies where it's like you know, if you're fluent in Russian, you can go to Russia for eight months and participate in like this closed habitat study where they simulate a mission to Mars and see what happens there. And, and funny enough, one of the things that does happen is when you're locked in that environment, uh, boredom, depression. Again, problems with interpersonal relationships start to happen. So, you know, what we focus a lot on, you know, yes, going to space, space exploration is cool, going to space is cool, being an astronaut is cool. But one of the things that we're not really talking about is that the, it does take a tremendous toll. And some of the missions that, that people are really enthusiastic about, you know, let's go to Mars, let's go back to the moon. Uh, we need to kind of say, well, hold on a minute. Moon, probably okay for a while. Uh, but Mars and, and beyond, that's something that we need to like really reconsider. And there's actually a lot of writers and scientists who've come out and said, you know, we will probably have bases on the moon with humans as we know them. But when it comes to Mars, when it comes to um, when it comes to the moons of the gas giants, when it comes to other solar systems, those are not things that humans as we know them today will ever be able to do. Um mm or at least not able to do safely. Because if you spend more than a year in a low gravity environment, all sorts of more horrible things will start to happen. And while we think that the human body would be able to adapt to some of them, uh, obviously with enough support, with enough exercise, there's going to be this huge problem where um, there's also radiation. There's also the fact that they might not be able to ever come back to Earth. If they want to have kids, that might not actually work out for them because right. we're not sure if, 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 all, if all the things will work. So it's, it's just it's not a good idea, period. So the thought is, well, if we are going to go beyond Earth and the moon... We're going to have to start thinking about genetic engineering. We're going to have to start thinking about cyber augmentations. You know, what what the astronauts who are going to land on Mars are not going to be and, and stay there for long periods of time are not going to be human the way that we define it today. And I would think I, I agree with that, especially given the, the studies and the information that's coming out of them uh, over the past 10 years or so. I'm not sure why you're really worried about this, because when Matt Damon goes to space, he's in a spinny thing, and then he has gravity, and he can turn it on and off whenever he wants. So I'm assuming if they just go with Matt Damon, then they can ride in his spinny thing that has gravity. They'll be fine. Ah, and that's actually a good way to try and 
mitigate some of these some of these problems. You essentially build like a bit a big ship that kind of looks like a donut. You spin it around its axis fast enough to where it's kind of like the centrifuge. It generates something very similar to artificial gravity, and off you go. Then you're, but then you start dealing with well, we actually have to land on Mars, and then you're exposed to that low gravity environment. Or what if something happens and that artificial gravity stops? Like you, there's, um, there, there are other things that come into effect. But one of the things that we could do, you're, you're absolutely right, is build spaceships that could generate artificial gravity by spinning. The really the only question is how big can we make them? Like we have materials to make them, uh, to make them very large. Um, and the larger they are, the slower they actually have to spin. So that's. So that's also good, but they have to be strong. They have to be, uh, they have to host a lot of, they have to have a lot of space for astronauts. So right now, if you're, if you're flying like a space shuttle, if you're, if you're looking at, uh, designs for, you know, the SpaceX Starship, they're kind of cramped, you know, they're kind of like a submarine and, uh, a lot of NASA scientists saying, well, no, you can't really do that for long-term missions. You have to give them space. You have to give people creature comforts. You can't just kind of like shove them in the cubby. And give them a treadmill once in a while and say, okay, best of luck. See you in three years. It's just that's not how that's ever going to work. The problem is building ships like that is extremely expensive. Mm. Um, It's going to take a very long time. Uh, They're going to be probably the most sophisticated things that we have ever built. Uh, They're going to be the size of like entire city blocks. But at the same time, they are definitely going to help us explore and go further. And here's another interesting thing. Uh, those designs have actually been around since like the 70s. You'll see a lot of like classic illustrations about the future of space flight and all these giant tubes and donuts. You know, there, there's a reason why they exist. It's, it's that artificial gravity. But one of the thoughts is, well, we'll build something like that. It'll be a generation ship that could house, you know, 10,000 humans and we can send them to the stars and with engines that can get them to some percentage of the speed of light. But when you actually do that, then all of these little particles in space that are very, very widely distributed, they all of a sudden become like a gas, like they will, they will actually slow down the ship as it moves. So your ship has to be very aerodynamic, which seems bizarre like why would you have an aerodynamic ship in space but if you're traveling at a notable percentage of the speed of light then all of a sudden you're dealing with the same forces you're just dealing with them at at very high speeds so the final design of something like a generation ship would look an awful lot like a spitting flying saucer from like a 50s b movie well which is ironic when we look at aliens in general that maybe they haven't figured out after all but i was going to say you can also mitigate that sort of friction if you will scenario because number 2 can make the uh the shields 80% to the front and that usually fixes the problem from what i've seen on tv i mean but all these things is all jokes aside i mean they're kind of real when we look at all these space movies the things that they're presenting in these space movies does speak to all of this they they're somewhat realistic from that perspective of being able to have shields to fly through space, to be able to have Matt Damon's uh, spinny thing. You know, it's not far off. It, it really isn't. And there have been studies to create these these shields. And essentially, it's a kind of like a, 
uh, electromagnetic field that's generated by the reactors of the ship, and it's projected outwards. And the thought is, well, maybe we can kind of combat solar radiation that way, and we can combat cosmic rays that way. But we haven't really found good ways to, to properly scale that up. And like I said, a lot of uh, a lot of scientists are just wondering, like, if we really want to send somebody to, you know, Mars by the 2030s or even the 2050s, will the technology be there uh, both from a monetary standpoint and from uh, from a standpoint of are we actually going to be able to make it work? Because some things might work extremely well in an, in a lab experiment and in small scale, but when you actually try to like implement them on the scale of spaceships, on the scale of bases, it just it doesn't really work. And there's a lot of additional technology that that really has to has to be in place. And one of the, but one of the interesting things that, that that makes me think about is that a lot of times when we talk about space exploration, we, we talk a lot about the spinoffs that are going to come out of building new ships and building new habitats and new materials and new ideas. And all of those are fantastic. But another thing that we really miss is the medical benefits of trying right. to understand how to cope with these environments. And if we can do that, number one thing is a lot of people who currently have disabilities or need a lot of help uh, doing their daily tasks are going to benefit tremendously from whatever technology will come out of it because it'll have to be things that support atrophied muscles or boost uh, or negate atrophy in muscles that rebuild bone that help with um, the help with the cardiovascular system. Uh, hmm. There may be treatments for radiation poisoning. There may be treatments to new treatments to counter cancer. So this is a field of very active research. And we understand that there, there may be a lot of uh, risks and dangers in going out into space. Uh, and we should not send humans to Mars until we're sure we can do that safely. Let's not put you know hundreds of people through a lot of misery, even if they volunteer for it, because that's just not ethical. Let's figure out how to actually do the things that we need to do in order for them to have a safe trip. And yes, even if they are not humans the way that we think about it. Even if they're heavily genetically modified, even if they have a lot of cyborg parts or components, they're still going to need that artificial gravity. They're still going to want to have shields. There's still going to mm. be a lot of things that we can do uh, to make their trip a lot more gainful and a lot safer. And we're going to learn a lot of very interesting things as we do that. Uh, it is interesting because I've never heard a conversation about a paraplegic going to space. And when you speak about it that way, it kind of makes me wonder if an astronaut could be a paraplegic because of the mobility that comes with zero gravity and the freedom that might come with that, that they don't get to experience in a gravity life on Earth if their legs don't work. The problem with doing that is because they're still going to need to find their way around and the wear and tear that it has on the body, the healthier a person mm. is, yeah. the the better they can survive it. However, if but we have augmentations that we're actually working on now that allow them to move their limbs by thoughts, and then all of a sudden that does become a possibility. They don't need hmm. to necessarily be very functional on Earth, but if they can control their body with an exosuit or something that is um, implanted into their uh, over their their musculoskeletal system then all of a sudden that that becomes a uh that becomes a possibility 
So before we go to the uh, Elon Musk hotel chain on on the moon, they've got to figure this out. They definitely have to figure out. The nice part about the moon is that it is close. We're not going to spend that much time there. It might actually be fairly safe to go to the moon. It's really one we stay for more than a month at a time. Um, I think we lost you. I think Greg Fish just went to the moon. Man, Fishy, are you okay? Oh. Are they are there? Are there? Oh, I got you now. Are you there, Fish? Oh, yep, I'm there. Okay, good. Well, we lost you there. It was like you went to the moon yourself, man. You were, <laughs> whoa. If anything, the world of weirdthings.com was ever going to go wrong, it was what you just sounded like, a robot. Like, I'm not sure that you're real now anymore. I'm like, you, you better send some proof of life because it's possible there's some aliens have stolen you. You know what? There is a joke with some of the other media people I work with. Who haven't met me for who hadn't met me for for a while? That I was actually just a sentient AI sitting in somebody's basement cranking out. So now I've just given them more ammo to come back and say, yeah. "See, we knew it. We knew it. It finally yeah. cracked. It took years, but it finally cracked." Well, with the uh, the we're gonna just for the sake of the uh, connection, we're we're gonna say thank you and we're gonna say goodbye. But you know when the um. You know when the wheel spins on your Mac or your PC and it just spins and spins and spins waiting for the next task to load? That's what it sounds like here. So I'm not quite sure that you're real. I may ask for proof. Uh, Greg Fish, worldofweirdthings.com. Thanks so much, Greg. And uh, it's a fascinating notion. I really appreciate it, brother. Always a pleasure. All right. Greg Fish right there, worldofweirdthings.com. Whoa, Ryan, that freaked you out. That freaked me out. It was uh, it was as if Greg went to space and also went to slow motion at the same time. Yeah, uh, it was it was like it was trippy. It felt like a 1970s music video or something. I haven't experienced that sound, not like that before here with the connection. I don't know. Maybe there's a solar flare or some world of weird thing that's blasting the internets. Uh, maybe it's that uh, maybe it's that new vaccine chip he got in his shoulder. You know, that might be it too. Uh, worldofweirdthings.com if you want to check out Greg's stuff. Uh, it's fantastic. It's a podcast. It's a blog and so much more. Greg Fish on The Shift. It's The Shift Podcast. Most recently, the conversation about, you know, government oversight has been around daycares. And my question to that has been, really, are we going to look at daycares as the next thing that the government takes control of in the last year when we've seen long-term care homes? I'm not quite sure we're ready there for that one. We'll see. To be determined, but that did bring up the question about long-term care homes. What about the old folks? How are they doing? What has been changing? The last that we really heard was that vaccines were being delivered to long-term care homes first. So I thought we would try to get an inside, inside scoop, an inside snapshot. Lisa Poole joins us. Lisa is a care partner, and uh, Lisa, help us understand. You know, what is a care partner? What is what does a day of Lisa look like? Uh, Hi, Shane. Thank you for asking. So a care partner is someone who helps support and provide care to a friend or family member. And sometimes they're referred to as caregivers. Um, And there's there's a lot of carers. That's the word they often use in England. I think it find it's awkward with our Canadian accent. But it is anyone who is providing support. And often people are called unpaid or informal. There is just a multitude of different uh, terms being used. The reason uh, I like the term care partner is because it 
suggest that uh, friends and family are part of the team and that they are also um, uh, often people who require care do not like the term caregiver because it is suggestive of a power imbalance. Like they're just taking everything and someone is giving it to them where a partner sort of suggests that that whole concept of whether it's other healthcare professionals or the person who receives care that everyone's in it together. I mean, do you work outside caring for your father? Um, well, at this point in my life, I, I, um, I consider myself a full-time volunteer. I'm involved in a lot of dementia-related uh, projects, uh, but, you know, I, I'm not uh, full-time employed somewhere else right now. Well, I just, I guess the reason why I ask is that life happens in the background, right? Like we still have to go through the grocery store. We still have to, most of us go to our jobs and deal with those things. And if you're going to care for your father, I mean, that must be, that must be quite the weight when you walk in or, you know, I mean, access has been limited at times, opened up at times. And then of course on Monday, there was more news in Alberta anyway, about more access being available. Um, Has it been scary for you? especially in the first wave of the pandemic, when there was so much uncertainty about what was going on and the people living in the long-term care homes were isolated and separated for family for months and no one really knew what was going on. It was absolutely terrifying. There were stories in the news about the neglect and, you know, we probably all heard the stories about the military having to go in in Ontario and Quebec and that absolutely filled families with fear uh, and because uncertainty is, especially when it is a vulnerable family member who you know cannot advocate for themselves, and it's no secret that the care homes are short-staffed, and so even at the best of times, there is there's challenges to making sure that everyone receives dignified, respectful care. And that's why a lot of, I mean, families go to visit. And once again, when I'm saying family, I'm using it loosely because it's friends and family who fall into that category. We do it out of love. We we're. I think a lot of people do it because they want to. So I'm not trying to suggest for a second that it's um, a burden to have to go and see, see someone. But there are a lot of ways that families help out that I think it might be unrecognized by um, people making decisions about keeping families out of care homes and understandable in the beginning of the pandemic, we didn't really know what we were dealing with. It made perfect sense to lock things down, physically distance, reduce social interaction to try to stop the spread of the virus. But the thing is keeping families out did not have it didn't change anything it it actually wasn't families who were bringing it in and that's not to point fingers at anybody but a lot of family members um didn't have a lot of contact with other people they would especially for older spouses sometimes the only person they were seeing was the person living in care and sorry i kind of forgot well that makes that makes total sense to me when you look at the um you know the the conversations around people working at multiple care homes. Exactly. Um, right. And so, I mean, yeah, so that makes sense. And I'm also a little bit surprised and it makes sense in hindsight, but maybe it just didn't occur to me that that family members carry such weight in the day to day with the old folks. Right. Um, when, 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 
So if you take the take the family out and take those team members out, as you described in the beginning, um, that is a largely um, depleted team. Once you take the family out of it, I mean, I, I didn't even that didn't even occur to me through all of this. Um, what's your dad's name? By the My way? father's name is John. John. Yes. Well, we might as well refer to John by his name then. Absolutely. <laughs> and so Shane, just picking up on what you just said, like I think sometimes people. And I, for myself, before my father was living in a long-term care home, I had no idea either. So I think that I love the idea of this conversation because hopefully we can raise awareness with other people who don't understand this, but families help people eat meals. They help with, um, you know, mobility and exercise. Like for example, we try to take my dad outside as much as we can. We try to have a family member visit him every single day because the care home staff doesn't have time to take him outside. And something that we all take for granted is just being able to feel the, you know, whether it's the wind or the sun or the snow on our face. And that is something that a lot of people uh, don't have available to them if they, once they move into a long-term care home, there's. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. I thought you were uh, Well, I, I can just keep going on. I don't need to give you a laundry list, but there are so many ways that families contribute and help out and support the, uh, not only the person who's living there, but the, the rest of the staff. Now you are in Calgary. Now, uh, across the country, it is a little bit different from province to province. Everyone's scenario is a little bit different. Um, what, what's one thing, if you could change one thing in hindsight of all of this, if you had to pick one, that's probably really hard to do. That's probably a really hard <laughs> question. I don't mean it to be so hard, but if you, um, if you had to, if you could pick one thing off the top of your mind, like looking back right now, What's the one thing that, that we can do to make sure that this doesn't happen again? Oh, that is... Because I, I share my opinion. I, my opinion about all of this has been um, quite... I've been quite disturbed, hurt um, about the way that we've treated old folks through this as this expendable thing um, and some of the attitudes that have carried around it. Oh, that's okay. They're old anyway. Like that stuff has blown my mind. Um, and so for me, I think the government, we've got to figure out how to make this not happen again. It's a big part of this puzzle. That's why I asked the question, just so you know my intention. Right. Thank you. And thank you for the question. Um, well, there are, it, it is hard to pick one thing because, you know, there's probably 10 things I'd like to change if I could. But if we're speaking about family um, being recognized as essential partners in care, then what I would say, if I had to change anything, it would have not been keeping family out and because the isolation and separation from for both people in the equation, whether it's the people who were unable to go visit their loved one in long-term care or the person who was living there, it was, was very difficult. And so to, to facilitate that there needs to be education. So for family members so that when they go to visit that they understand how to use PPE. I mean, a word that I never knew before. We all are very familiar with that means now and infection control because families don't want to be the ones spreading the virus. In fact, I think there was a survey that I read recently that was conducted by the university of Calgary that families are willing to do anything like just tell us what we need to do. We will do it so that we can continue to, come into long-term care home. And especially, as you said before, that th we were already short staff, 
the pandemic created further staff shortages. And so Fally was needed now more than ever or during that pandemic more than ever. And I mean, as it, it things in Alberta anyhow are getting better because so many people have been vaccinated. And so a lot of the pressure is off, but there, there are still a shortage of staff members who are hired to work in the care homes. And that's something that also needs to change. Their education and training needs to change. And, you know, we could go on and on. But if we're speaking about family members, yeah. that never again should family members be denied access to the person who's living in the care home. It seems to me that inside the structure of the, the business, if you will, for easy language, nobody knows what anybody does. I mean, really. I mean, I think you have a bunch of uh, professionals who work in those businesses because they love to care for people. And they go over and above so often. We've seen this in many different jobs, right? You've got those couple of people in the business that go over and above and work so hard so often that the the design of it is even unknown of who contributes what. And someone goes missing, whether they get sick or they quit or whatever. And all of a sudden, everything falls apart because nobody really knows what anybody does. And that, to me, seems retroactively to know that I think they got to accept that the, the grounding rod here is there are... the. The design is not working. There's not enough money coming in um, to provide the support that people expect. And then you've got, in a lot of cases, people paying for a service that they're out doing in themselves anyway by going every day and walking the folks around. So, I mean, I find that uh, unbelievable. I I feel like we're talking about your dad here uh, like he's just a number. So I don't want to do that. So tell me about John, um, your dad. Uh, Can you tell me what your favorite thing... um, is when you get to see him now, what's that, that one thing is, I mean, daddy's little girl is still a thing. Yeah. Even though we can, we can talk as, uh, we can speak to each other as, as, uh, you know, properly as we want to about long-term care homes. But the reality is you're still daddy's little girl. So what's your favorite thing about John when you go see your dad? Well, honestly, my father has advanced dementia and a lot of people think that someone living with dementia isn't going to recognize family members and there's not a lot happening inside but I can 100% tell you that my father recognizes us when we come to visit him and to see a smile on his face when he knows that we're there is you know that just warms your heart like nothing else does because you know it's genuine and it's pure and there's still a, a human connection happening take that in times of by thousands of people who didn't get that for so long, man. Um, the notion that people can die of a broken heart to me is a very, very, um, inexcusable situation. And so I, I still stand by the fact that man, oh man, we, this is, this is the part that got screwed up the most. I mean, we can talk economics all we want. We can talk vaccinations all we want, but you know, this story is, is, is the hardest. Uh, is it opening up? The, the news out of Alberta today is that more people vaccinations are going. Like when you go there to see dad, is it does it feel lighter? Does it feel more, a little bit more normal? Well, we're getting there. The fact that we're allowed to go in, I mean, that's a huge step in the right direction. You still have to wear uh, the, the PPE when you go to see and there's masks and there's shields and there's a lot of barriers, but it's better than being separated by glass or um, some of the other barriers that people had to try to visit through. Um, but I also wanted to really highlight um, a new program 
created by a, a, a relatively new group called Healthcare Excellence Canada. And it's all about helping care homes understand how to welcome family members, reintegrate them back into care homes. Because I also don't want to be pointing fingers at anyone. The people, as you mentioned before, in care homes, that they are working very hard. They have a hard job. And so sometimes they just don't have the tools or the knowledge that they need. They're, They're trying to keep people safe. Like, we get that. And... So I, uh, I, I'm involved, I'm one of several family members who's involved in creating this Essential Together program. Uh, and I love the fact that they've involved family members to help create it. And it's to just raise awareness about all the things we've just been talking about so that people have the, so that family members sort of know what they should be able to do and also the care homes do as well. And they've got all kinds of tools and different um, huddles, they call them, where people can get together and discuss different issues so that everyone can get more comfort with the idea of families being in there, even during an outbreak. Uh, Lisa Poole is, uh, well, cares for her dad, who is in long-term care home in Calgary. And uh, thank you, Lisa, for sharing the insight directly into what that's like. Um, it's eye-opening for me. And I as well, I agree with you. I don't point fingers at all those people that have worked hard. Um and, um, you know, been in there and done the best they can that didn't have the right tools. The big question for me is now, how do we take, how do we take Lisa and John and make sure that the next family that step, steps into this, these homes doesn't have to go through this the same way that, uh, that John had to go through and, and all the fights and frustrations you must've, uh, dealt with. I admire that by the way. I admire the, um, tenacity, I think to stay with it, um, you know, stand up and fight for it and to attend all of these, these public meetings to get all the thoughts shared and, and care for the people. So thanks for being one of those, those folks who has a soft heart for the old guys. Well, thank you for your interest, Shane. This is the Shift Podcast. Welcome to the International Dispatch from our world citizen. Live from Japan, New Zealand's Chris Gilbert. Hello, Sir Christopher Gilbert and your stinky fish. Hello. There's no stinky fish around here, though. I'm sorry. Stinky ah. fish is, is nowhere near my house at the moment. I only have clean, sweet-smelling uh, sweet fish and other food products around me at the moment. But um, maybe moment. more stinky fish in my summer ahead. If I can, if I can uh, get vaccinated and get out to the Tokyo Islands, I might have another stinky fish again in my future. I might even send one to you, Shane. Well, I would, oh, really? Uh, I will take this opportunity to refer back to uh, some podcasting that Chris did that we ran here on The Shift a few months ago, that if you only have to go to this website, you can contribute to those amazing podcasts. Funradiopodcast.com is the uh, name of the documentaries I made about Japan a year or so ago, and there's uh, new ones coming. Um, I have uh, a bunch of audio collected for a new story already, and uh, I had to turn that into a, a documentary to check on, check on the old web, webby sitey. And uh, then I'm going to set a whole new project coming up in, uh, in the summer. So I'm not going to say anything about that at the moment, but there's exciting things in the future. Um, in the meantime, I have a whole week off, which I was just telling you about, Shane. So I'm yeah. really excited. I get to lie around and do nothing all week. Sir Christopher Gilbert is in Tokyo. He was uh, a team member here on The Shift in 2020 and so he decided to stick around he loved us so much or something and um in tokyo they actually give you an entire week vacation like here you go yeah 
Yeah, it's awesome. So uh, there's a few days off at this time of year. Let me uh, refer to my notes here. Uh, tomorrow is Showa Day, which is the emperor's birthday from the Showa period, which is, I think, two or three emperors ago. Then there's May 3rd, which is Constitution Day. Then there's Greenery Day. Then there's Children's Day. And so there were so many holidays lumped together at this time of year. They were like, ah, oh, just take the whole week off. Um, and so every time this year we have Golden Week, which is the week off. In November, I think there's a similar period called uh, Silver Week. And in August, there's a, uh, a summer holiday, which is a week long, called Obon. And then, of course, there's a week off at the, at the turn of the new year uh, for the new year. So wow, um, very friendly with the time off in Japan. I'm very happy about that. Yeah, it seems like that's uh, every time we have a long weekend, you seem to get a week off. Well, although we did have our uh, greenery day a little over a week ago on April twentieth, uh, so Canada also celebrated greenery day. Did you did you just have a long weekend? Because New Zealand had a long weekend too. It was Anzac Day in New Zealand. No, it was just four twenty, and everyone got high in Canada. That's all. Oh, okay, and they they slept in and didn't go to their jobs. Right. Yeah. Yeah, no, right. we we can't we can't talk about that in in uh, Japan. I think even talking about that substance might have my visa revoked. It is so taboo here to even really speak mention of the green. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had, I had no idea. No idea. Things we learn. All right, so yeah, tell crazy. us uh, tell us where we're going to go on the international dispatch here, Sir Christopher Gilbert. Where do we get started in this uh, super in depth reporting that you bring to the shift every week? Um, have you heard of dog TV? I saw a TikTok today that someone had walked up and said, when your dog watches his favorite shows. And the dog was like this bushy dog sitting on the couch, one arm on the arm of the couch, watching TV. And it was looked like a dog on TV. So if that's what you're talking about, I only saw it earlier today in a TikTok. I don't know. Is it a real thing? Yeah, it's a real thing, apparently. And, and oh, God, I mean, this is just one of these things that makes me go. I mean, you can you guys can see me on the Zoom call, but it's one of these stories which just makes my, my blood boil a little bit, where it's like, it's not really a story. It's just a product. But, okay, so in Australia, Australia is getting dog TV. And dog TV is uh, TV of dogs featuring dogs for dogs, and your dog watches it. Um, it is meant to entertain your dog and stimulate your dog, relax your dog while you are away from the house by watching TV. Because what did dogs ever do before watching TV? I don't know. They obviously need it. Um, so Australia has dog TV now. Uh, Brendan, let's hear a, a little bit about, uh, about dog TV. Australian TV has literally gone to the dogs and this channel is perfect for 12-year-old Maltese Terrier Cross Tasha and 2-year-old Border Collie Lexi. Something for her to do or watch um, whilst this one's having her little nap. And unlike maths, it's something the whole family can enjoy together. Some of it's good for human meditation too. Some of the relaxation ones, I was like, oh, this is quite nice. Oh, God. Really? Stupid dogs and stupid people. It's just so much. Why not just put on The Lion King or a movie with animals on it and just or how about, leave that on? How about or, don't get a dog if you have to leave it all day? Mm-hmm. I mean, I agree with all of that. And I am also like, I think people are snowflaking their dogs like, oh, my little, he's such a special little 
poodle woodle doodle and he's not like other dogs he 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 understands the tv he he watches he watches eastenders with me i don't know if you guys know what eastenders is but nope. it's like yeah it's an australian sitcom um you know it's like he watches home and away and he understands it he follows the plot lines and everything my dog right he needs it and TV. he also he likes the sweaters that we put on him and his little raincoat and uh all these things yeah. so i but i thought dogs couldn't see tvs very well i know that some dogs watch the tv uh my parents dog for example every time a dog comes on a commercial she loses her mind but then you yeah. get other dogs where you put a dog on the tv and you hold them there and they they turn around and look at you like what is it the yeah. audio yeah. though from the, the that makes like the the sound of a dog barking is that what makes them lose their mind cuz i don't think they like, see the tv oh. very well to be honest no, that's know. an excellent question. We'll get to the audio in a second, but I like the audio, the visuals. I think as much like a velvet underground, you know, like like gig, like the backdrop of you know, it's just like pigments and and things flashing around and and different non colors because obviously they're colorblind, so like they can't see that much. I think it's just like oh, there's something in the room that's moving, in a room of things that aren't moving. I'm gonna look at it because I'm that a dog, be. you know. I don't know. That could right. be. I don't know. I, I I have more to say about this. Let's listen to the second clip. The concept of TV for canines initiated in America and is teaching many an older dog new tricks. Then we grew um, outside the US to Latin America, South Korea. With the majority of people across Australia returning to workplaces, it's a perfect solution to any potential separation anxiety. About one in four to one in six dogs actually suffer from anxiety these days. Ugh, wow. scary. So dogs are they don't gonna... have anxiety. I'm sorry, they don't. No, they're they dogs. learn from their dog owners. Oh, they chase sticks and they smile and they wag their tails and they swim in the ocean. And I don't mean to go all, like Dennis Miller here, or, like, and I mean, you know, but like, dogs don't have anxiety. They're just dogs. They're puppies. Found a stick on the ground. Um, but that they do. Hey, everything dogs do, they learn from their parents. It's just that simple. So what? You know what's next? Here, here's your capitalist million dollar idea ready chris mm-hmm. you're going to build a dog tv network for people for when they go to work so then they can watch slides of other people's dogs and dog shows so they don't suffer from anxiety separation anxiety from missing their dogs who are at home you can back end that deal million dollars so you mean we can add like an extra commute uh like computer monitor in the office yep which is just a slide show of your dog yeah, kind of like when you go to the doctor's office and they've got like slides up in the thing about, did you know that if you walk this far every day, it'll help your health this much? Yep, it'll be just like that. It'll be dogs. And uh, and for at a premium fee, you can get your dog inserted into the feed. I'm pretty sure if you pitched it as science, people would buy a dog slideshow. They would pay $10 a month to have a slideshow of dogs in their office. Because like, no, yeah. it, it's science. We've proven it. It's going to help you. But... um. Brendan did ask about the audio before, and yeah. uh, so I, I stole some audio. I mean, um, I uh, borrowed some audio from one of the TV programs of Dog TV, and it's just a dog walking around the city, you know, like going through back alleys, you know, tagging street corners and stuff. And uh, th- this is the audio that's meant to um, relax the dog and reduce their anxiety. So let- let's have a listen to this. <laughs>
Ooh, you're not kidding. feeling anxious. Yeah, that gave yeah. me anxiety. When you're I no am kidding. trying to go to sleep and my heart is pounding because I have sleep anxiety, this is what it sounds like in my head. That's it right there. <laughs> I am already yes. feeling it right now. It is the worst possible. That's exactly such a good description because when I can't sleep at night, it's just like adrenaline is pumping through you. You're like, I need to sleep. I need to sleep. I need to sleep. And that that audio is the sound of the feeling of not being able to sleep at night. Uh, are we still talking about sounds, or do we need to move on? We can move on. I, I'm just saying. Like, well, that, no, because I no, because I have a thing. I like if you really wanted to make money in this, if you would just play sounds of. Have you ever heard a dog fart on hardwood? I'm sorry, what? If you ever heard a dog fart on hardwood, it's the best sound in the world. Like, you want to make money at this, you do that. You can make a million bucks doing that, too. Second idea. There you go. A dog farting on hardwood. Yeah, when a dog is sitting there on a hardwood floor and they fart. You never heard that? Well, maybe that was only a Great Dane thing when I had big what? dogs. No, I've never heard that. <laughs> I've had dogs around me most of my life. I guess um, most of the houses in New Zealand are carpeted. So, um oh. I, I guess I'm going to have to borrow someone's dog. We have hardwood floors at the moment, so I'm going to have to borrow someone's dog and just well, sit them down and wait till it happens now. I'm not going to be I happy. can translate it to New Zealander, if you like, and say, have you ever heard an emu fart on a hardwood floor? We don't, That's Australian. We don't have emus. Oh, we have alpaca. It, sorry. Sorry. You ever heard an alpaca oh, hard God, fart on a carpet? Oh, sorry. I'm going to let it go. Um, I will just say, to finish the dog, the dog TV story, um, I Googled... Uh, just I did some background and uh, research into dog TV, <laughs> and I found this Reddit article or this Reddit post, which is anti-vaxxer with dog TV show in my neighborhood is threatening the lives of our local dogs and purposely trying to infect his dogs and others. Is there anything I can do? A certain dog who had <laughs> like the a certain dog it's so passive aggressive who attends my <laughs> dog park has his own show on dog TV. Currently in Chicago, we have a fairly nasty new strain of the dog flu going around. The owner of this dog is trying to convince everyone to infect their dogs and develop immunity naturally. This flu has a 5% mortality rate in dogs per local veterinarians and 40% in cats. Um, so I don't know what to make of that, but uh, that's, that's the main thing that comes up if you Google dog TV. So uh, I think it tells you. All you need to know about that. Dog TV, Mori, I dust my hands of you. Good day. It's sir. the Maury Povich will put a show on there, and you can really find out who the father is. That, That's when they know they made it. <laughs> Fido, you are the father. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So anyway, Australia has dog TV. Uh, China has uh, pop idol contests, um, and you don't have to be Chinese to be on them. You can be Russian. Uh, you can be a Russian man. You can be an extremely good-looking 27-year-old Russian man um, who is uh, pretty much being held against his will um, on a Chinese TV show, which is what, what has happened. Um, wait, 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 wait. So there's a a Russian man on a TV show against he's like he's there against his will. Effectively, like you can pretty much assure he's like is as far as he can get to being, you know, like a hostage on a TV show while, you know, not being, you know, while the, the producers are not doing anything illegal. He is effectively there against as well. Um, wow. But the news is he was just voted off, so he is free again. Um, 
hopefully like Britney Spears will be um, pretty soon. But uh, free Britney. This guy, this yeah, hashtag free Britney. This guy, his name is Vladislav Ivanov. Uh, he's 27 years old. He is a beautiful man, and I think if any of you see him, you will agree. He's got one of those very uh, post, like very dystopian, like very jawline, very smooth skin, like very uh, futuristic, uh, like non-racial faces. Like he's just like the universal faced man. Um, but he speaks fluent Mandarin, and he was in China to work on this TV show called uh, Producer Camp or produce camp, which is designed to make a new boy band. And he was there to huh. teach Mandarin um, as a teacher. Um, I don't know why he has to teach Mandarin, um, but apparently he does. That's, that's yeah, weird. that's what I was thinking. Although there of are all the many places you go to. Languages. Yeah, I guess yeah, so. But, but of all the places you go to, you would think that's not the place. Yeah, I was a bit confused by that, especially why you need someone that's not from China to do it. But he was there. Um, yep. And, and he is particularly handsome. He is very good looking. And the producers of this TV show were like, wow, you are so good looking. Would you like to be a contestant? He was invited to sign on. Um, they asked him, would you like to try a new life? He said yes, but he appeared to regret his decision almost immediately but he could not leave without breaking his contract. This is the part of the story I really like, is that if you Google uh, clips of Producer Camp, his, his stage name is uh, Lelush, L-E-L-U-S-H. It is probably the most unenthusiastic contestant on any game show I have ever seen, ever. Yeah. Ever since, I think I started watching game shows in like Survivor 2001 and, uh, or reality television. And I have never seen anybody not smile once, barely talk, just mope around the stage, and effectively not even try um, the entire Does time. Does not look happy. Does not look happy. He's not a happy chappy. And in fact, he um, his lack of enthusiasm played in half-hearted singing, rapping, and dancing alongside the more uh, eager uh, contestants. Uh, I've got a little bit of a clip of his unenthusiastic rapping here. Not even trying. No. Yeah. Wow. Uh, yeah, is there more? Am I jumping ahead here? Because that's I mean, no, wait, wait, wait. There, there is more, but I'll, I'll give right, you yeah. a, a break to jump in. Here, here, here. No, no. Well, I was just jump like... In, jump in, So he's on TV. He doesn't want to be there. He's basically trying to fail and screw it up. That's that's how I understand it? He's trying to fail. He's trying to screw up. And not only that, but he is saying directly to the people, because it's a vote competition... He's saying to the audience, please vote me off this show. <laughs> He's like actually saying it. Wow. Here's a quote. He says, don't love me. You'll get no results. Um, but it's much <laughs> like, <laughs> it's much like, um, do you know, the, do you know the Monty Python life of Brian? Where it's like, He's running Aww. away from the mob, and he's like, I'm not the Messiah, I'm not the Messiah. And the mob is like, only the true Messiah would like, like denounce his own divinity. Exactly what I was going to say. Yeah, yeah it's, it's exactly what's happened here, where he was like, don't love me, I hate this, get me off this show. 
And all the audience were just like, oh my God, this guy is so good looking and so cool and so casual. And he doesn't even want to be there. This is awesome. And so they kept voting for him and he made the final. <laughs> Got all wow. the way through the entire season to the final episode. Miserable the entire time and the audience just loving it. Um, effectively a prisoner. Uh, he couldn't breach his contract. He wanted to leave. Um and the conclusion was that he didn't make the boy band. He was finally vi- voted off in the final episode. Um, but uh, I think he uh, he hated the entire experience. But I'm glad that Lelush is free now. And um, fi- as he said, I'm finally getting off work. <laughs> I um, I kind of feel like that's a shift some days. <laughs> Vote us off the shift. You can't, you can't say that. I'm joking. I'm just kidding. Nobody knows you're joking. Most days. I'm just joking. I love this show. Well, I was just going to say, I really relate to his energy level in the rap. That's that's me to a T right there. <laughs> that's you rapping? Yeah, that's me rapping for sure. <laughs> we might have to get uh, Brennan rapping. Uh, Buffalo Brennan, which, by the way, came as an earlier nickname. Yeah, um, yeah I can get behind that, yeah. Hey, Buffalo like Brennan that. rapping. Yeah, Buffalo um, Brennan, that's great. Well, Sir Christopher Gilbert, uh, enjoy your week off. And as it was texted to us, that's cool. He's getting a week off of vacation while he's on vacation. So. I'm not on vacation. I am working my butt off for no money. In case you don't know, freelance journalists or freelance anything don't actually have an income. So we have to like work every second for every dollar that we earn. So please go to funradiopodcast.com forward slash support. <laughs> and I'm no longer on vacation. And in my defense, by the way, there's a text from Dan says, when my Malamute would fart on the hardwood floor, it was absolutely hilarious. She would look at us completely mortified. So there you go. (laughs) Malamutes are hilarious anyway, but I'm sure the farting really helps. So Christopher Gilbert, live from Tokyo. Thanks, brother. Great to see your face. You too. Uh, Have a good one, guys. And uh, yeah, happy Golden Week. See you next time. Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.